Hey everyone, it's Amanda. Welcome to The Drop, a podcast by Eastern Municipal Water District. You've heard us mention in the past that tap water is safe to drink and that the water we provide to our community meets or exceeds state and federal regulations. But how are we testing our water to ensure that? On this episode, Michelle Karras, Principal Environmental Compliance Analyst, joins us to discuss EMWD's environmental and regulatory efforts and the steps we take to ensure water quality. Thanks for joining. Let's get started. Well, I get it. Yeah. Those are for you. And then we'll do a quick uh, test. Oh, okay. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Awesome. Hi, my name is Michelle Karras. I'm the Principal Environmental Compliance Analyst. I've been here at EMWD for 17 years in July. 17 years? Yes. That's hard to believe. Time flies when you're having fun. (laughs) Hard hard to hear it. (laughs) So was this, uh, what did you do before you came here to EMWD? So I came in here as a temporary employee, um, driving around collecting distribution samples. And then I applied to be in the lab. So I started out as a lab technician, then went to a one, two, Four, then became the senior analyst, and now I'm in um, environmental services as the principal environmental compliance analyst. Wow, so you really just kind of made your way up. Yes. Into it. That's awesome. So what, what is your degree in? What kind of is your background before you started here as a temp employee? So I got my bachelor's degree in biological sciences from the University of California, Riverside. Shout out to <laughs> the UCR alumni. <laughs> I'm sure we have a lot here in this area. There's a lot. (laughs) UCR is is the predominant UC in the Inland Empire. I think it's the only UC in the Inland Empire. Um, So with that, was it always kind of your goal, like, oh, I'm going to work in water quality? Or were you looking just kind of to land somewhere? I've always been interested in science. That was my thing, I guess. And I just happened to fall into water. So... When you talk about the environmental and regulatory department, which is what you're a member of, you talked about how originally you were collecting water samples. What are the different aspects of that department from water samples all the way up to where you are? So um, the environmental and regulatory compliance um, division is um, consists of environmental services, the lab, and source control. And um, the environmental services group uh, consists of separate teams that are focused on drinking water, wastewater, and air quality regulations. And so my big focus is water quality. And when you talk about water quality, you're, you're, you just mentioned drinking water and wastewater. So you're testing samples from both of those, uh, from our facilities, both from on the wastewater and drinking water side. Yeah, so uh, drinking water and wastewater... Both have very similar but different regulations. Um, drinking water is kind of my thing, so I'll speak on behalf of drinking water. Perfect. So who, who sets the standards for drinking? When we collect samples and we're testing them, what are we testing it against? So uh, we have EPA and we have the state that sets standards. Sometimes they're the same. Sometimes one is more stringent than the others. Um, but they set our standards and we have to meet them. So we talk, we do talk about how like our drinking water meets or exceeds those state standards and we're testing that here on site. Yes. And can you talk a little bit about the lab that we're testing? Sure, so 
just in 2022 alone, um, on the drinking water side, we tested for over 209, well, we tested 209 contaminants and um, collected over 10,000 samples and about 47,000 tests were run. Um, and a lot of it is within our internal lab. So, and I, I kind of want to paint this picture. It is a state certified lab. We're really proud of that because yes. we have that here on site. We don't have to send too much out. We yes. can do everything, like you said, right? Almost 50,000 water quality tests last year alone were done here on site. But it's also, we, we bring students through the lab for tours because it's what you would expect from a lab. White coats, the goggles, but these are, and their titles are actually scientists. Yes. Yeah. So what kind of contaminants are we testing for? So I guess when we talk about water quality, we're talking about, um, you know, the physical, the chemical, the biological characteristics. So, you know, we're running microbiology tests um, that indicate kind of the sanitary quality and the integrity of the distribution system. And then we have, you know, the inorganic and the um, organic testing. And um, inorganic testing can include salts and minerals and metals and um, actually hardness of water is a common question that we get from customers because it can cause aesthetic issues like the water spots. Um, you know, we test for a lot of things. We test for the reliability of our treatment plants. So, you know, what's coming into our treatment plants, everything in between the treatment process and at the end, um, and this kind of ensures the treatment plants are working properly. So we've talked to water ops on a couple occasions. We've talked to John Datinga, and but we've also talked with Phil Lancaster over at the Desalters. And Phil does mention how operators will go and kind of test every or pull samples from every kind of spot within treatment because you want to make sure it's working correctly. So right. we know that a roughly at this point in treatment, water should have X amount of the, this in it or that removed. Is that about right? Yeah, that's right. You know, every part of a treatment is a purpose. So, you know each section of the treatment. I I call it Lego pieces because each Lego piece does something. Um, and so we can test that to make sure that, you know, it's removing what it's supposed to remove. I like that, the Lego pieces. Yeah. <laughs> so when you talked a little bit about the aesthetics, I think that there's this a negative connotation around hard water because it does leave spots. But what makes the water, quote, why is that considered hard water? Well, there's naturally occurring salts and minerals in the water. And um, even in bottled water, they add salts and minerals for taste. Um, and so, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of the times it's naturally occurring. And so it's not bad for you. It's not going to hurt you. Yeah, it's going to leave spots probably on your shower if you have a glass shower door. Right. But it's not, it's not anything that has been added to your water or something that we missed to take out. No. And if you think about it, two people take calcium, vitamins, magnesium, vitamins. So, you know, it's naturally, naturally occurring. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's just there. <laughs> um, we, I know in some parts of water quality and treatment, we actually will put like raw groundwater, like for the desalter, for instance, we'll put raw groundwater back in just at a small amount into the water once it's been treated. I, I gave a tour last week to about 50 high school students over at the DeSalter, and I told them, I said, think about H2O as a molecule just on its own. It's really needy. So if we don't introduce some of those uh, minerals back into it, it, it needs friends. Otherwise, it would attach to our pipes. 
So does that play a role at all in the water quality world? Yeah, absolutely. There's a balance. You know, um, water needs its balance. You don't want it to be too aggressive and too corrosive. Um, and so, yeah, you do need those minerals back in the water. Because if it if it doesn't have those friends or those minerals, it w- will attach to those pipes. It'll be corrosive. It'll eat away. If it doesn't eat away at our pipes, it's going to eat away at the pipes in your home. That's correct. Yeah. What are some of the techniques that we're using to test that water in the lab? Is it kind of, you know, just a, um, putting something under a microscope like somebody would think of when they when they think about a lab? But I, I feel like there's a lot more high-tech oh, operations yeah. over there. I feel there. like this yeah. is a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> we have so many different methods, so many different instruments, um, so many different standards when it comes to, you know, whether you're testing drinking water or wastewater. Um, so it's very specific to the contaminant and the method and the matrix. <laughs> So you were in the lab for a good chunk of your 17 years here, and yes. now you're, you're, at, you're at a desk now. Yes. So what, how has your role changed? What are you focused on now? Um, because there's a lot more than just the lab that goes into making sure that our water is safe to drink. Right. So, you know, I went from collecting the distribution samples that go to the lab, and then I ended up testing the samples that go to the lab. And then I started reviewing the data. Um, and then now I'm doing both like a review and comparing the results to state and EPA standards and making sure that we meet them. I think one of the biggest misconceptions that the public has is that somehow the water that they buy at the store that's been bottled is somehow cleaner or or better than what comes out of their tap. Isn't it safe to say that the water that is bottled is coming from the same sources that EMWD gets its water from? Yeah, I think that is safe to say. Um, You know, a lot of the times when you see a water bottle and it says purified water, it is water from the tap that undergoes, you know, reverse osmosis and um, maybe ultrafiltration. But we already utilize those technologies at our plants. So exactly, um, I think bottled water is mainly for the aesthetic reasons like taste. It's a convenience, too. It is definitely a convenience. Which, I mean, like, I understand. But I, I think where I take issue with some of it is that it's, quote, healthier. It's water is water. Right. <laughs> um, but, and it's also, we play this game with our in our K-12 through program where we do the prices right, where we ask kids to price out bottled water versus tap water and what they could get from one billing unit with EMWD versus a billing unit, which is 748 gallons with another bottled water provider. And they're always really surprised to find out that ours is the best bang for the buck and it's the same water. Yeah. It's a lot more affordable. Yes. So all of our water quality information, everything that the team tests for is public. And in fact, we announce when that information and a full report is out every year. Can you kind of touch on our water quality report? Sure. So every year in July, we publish our Consumer Confidence Report, or we call it the CCR. There's our acronym. That's a running joke here. Yes. CCR. And um, everything we test for in the prior year goes into this report. Um, We take our results and we compare them to the state and federal standards that we kind of briefly talked about. And um, this way, the consumer can see, okay... I live in this area, this is what's in my water, and compare it to the standard. Not all contaminants are listed in the report because 
we test them and they're not detected. If we included everything that was not detected, we would have a really long report that nobody would want to read. And it would just have like zero, 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 zero. Yes. So if somebody were to read the report and they were like, well, I read somewhere in an article that this is in our water, but they don't see it. We didn't find it. Right. Got it. Nobody wants to see a bunch of zeros. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just if it's not there, it wasn't there. It wasn't there. Right. Um. So, and that comes out every July. That comes out every July. And it, I think sometimes people get confused because this year when it comes out, it'll say the 2022. Yes. So it'll have all of 2022 data. Um, obviously, 2023 is not over yet. So we can't do future data. We look at, you know, the prior year. It's always going to be, to your point, a year behind because that's a completed 12-month cycle, which we, which we uh, tested for. Right. So, I, Mitchell, I wanted to talk about something that's been, it made a big splash, no pun intended, in the news um, last week. And it's something that we as a water district have been aware of and monitoring, and that's the PFOS PFOA issue. And the EPA just released new standards for that. Can you talk a little bit about what PFOS and PFOA is? Sure. So this is the hot topic. It's going to be a hot topic for a long time. Um, so like you said, EPA just proposed um, MCLs for PFOA, which is perfluorooctanoic acid, and PFOS, perfluorooctane sulfonic acid, and a hazard index MCL for a combination of four different PFOS compounds. And so PFOS are a group of man-made chemicals that are extremely resistant to water and heat. Um, they're widely used and very hard to break down. Um, and PFOA, PFOS are the two most common PFOS chemicals that we've been studying. Um, and they're no longer manufactured or imported in the U.S., but because of their inability to break down, they're being found in the environment. It's everywhere. Right. So I know that Teflon, it's yes. in Teflon. I, I Actually, in preparing to kind of talk about this today, but also just when we get questions in the community, I dove into like history on it. But it's something that was created during World War II. I mean, don't quote me. I think they were manufactured in the 1940s. Okay. And um, yeah, they're, they're everywhere. They're basically anything waterproof. Um, they're in a lot of common household products, cosmetics, um, sunscreen, floss. Uh, the pans that Lots you cook pans, with. Yeah. Um, food wrappers. Yes. Yeah. Food wrappers that are. So when you buy your burger and it's that kind of waxy material, yes. that's PFOS. Yes. Um, and there's so many different compounds of PFOS, um, variations of PFOS. I think they, it's over 12,000 different types of PFOS. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so 12,000 different compounds of PFOS, PFOA. How long have we been testing for that? For those compounds? So testing for PFOS started in 2013, and there were for only six of the compounds. Um, that list eventually went up to 18 different compounds. Um, now, fast forward to today, we're talking about 25 PFOS camp compounds. And in the future, we're looking, in the future meeting in a few years, we're looking at 29 compounds. Why is this, you know, we kind of have our set standards that we've always followed prior to 2013, you want to look for this, you want to look for this. Why is this so kind of ever-changing? It changes all the time. You know, we're still learning about him, um, and it doesn't help that there's so many different variations of this compound. Um, 
we're in the learning stages. We're getting a baseline of where we're at. Um, you know, a lot of agencies are looking to see, okay, what are the water characteristics? What what are we going to do? How do we mitigate this issue? You know, it's an ongoing research, I guess. Um, we're still learning about, you know, how to test the method development, the instruments, the there's a lot of things that go hand in hand. And um, even with EP in the state, it takes them a while to gather all this information. They have to do their own research. Um, and so we're kind of just waiting. <laughs> the waiting game. Well, and I think, you know, we talked about how it was created. It's man-made in the 40s. Relatively, that's not, I know that's for some people, they're like, that was 80 years ago. But that's still relatively newer yes. it, when it comes to what we know about chemicals in the environment, especially a man-made chemical. Yes. So it makes sense that that's why the EPA, EPA has released this new, these new guidelines, because to your point, we're still learning, even they're still learning, and we're all kind of taking notes from one another. Yeah, exactly. So when we, when we talk about testing for PFAS and these changing guidelines, what are the quantities that we're looking for? We're looking at parts per trillion. Um, that's equivalent to one teaspoon in 1.3 billion gallons. We're talking very, 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 very little. (laughs) (laughs) But we're testing at that level. We're testing at that level. And is that the level that the EPA has set forth, or are our testing guidelines going to change with these new regulations? They're, they're, I mean, we don't have, it's not official yet. Everything's still proposed, but we could see changes. I mean, we went from EPA saying, oh, we have a health advisory of 70 of PFOA, PFOS combined to now two separate at four PPT. So um, it was 70 PPT and now it's four PPT. Right. Parts per trillion. Parts per trillion. Which is a teaspoon in 1.3 billion. Billion. Yeah, billion. I wish we could quantify that. I'll I know. <laughs> How much is 1.3 billion gallons of water? It's a lot. It's a lot. So we always talk about dilution is the solution. When you're in the lab or something and something would splash into your eyes, which should never happen, but say it would, we'd always say dilute with water, get it out. In this case, we're looking for such a small amount, you would think dilution would be the solution, but it's a water-resistant chemical. Right. These chemicals are extremely water-resistant, and they are found everywhere. So you have to be careful, even when you're analyzing or collecting the sample, you have to make sure, you know, you don't have any waterproof clothing on or you know you're not using a sharpie because sharpie may have PFAS in it there's or, no post-it note no, with the right, sticky, the sticky on right, it yeah. uh-huh. <laughs> you didn't eat you know fast food before you sampled so it's it's a has to be like this almost perfect environment of yes, nothing you can have touched anything because that will I don't want to say clean but you, yeah, you know almost it would compromise any kind of sampling so right so I when PFOS is found at the above the levels that we're looking for. Uh, what happens? So the proposed MCL is four PPT. Um, if we had a source above four PPT, we would have to take that source out of service. Um, and in order to put it back into service, we would have to find some sort of treatment for it. So in this case, it would be, let's say, a well. If we were to test one of our well samples and it was above what the regulation was for PPT or a teaspoon in 1.3 billion gallons, gallons, (laughs) um, 
we would take that well offline. Yes. And we would rehab it with some sort of treatment facility. And sometimes they use like charcoal or yes. other things that can take out that PFOS chemical. Yes. Got it. And, you know, it's this regulation is very difficult too because um, detecting it so low and having an MCL, so a maximum limit, at also another low concentration is very difficult. We're looking at you know, we can detect it down to 2 PPT, but once we hit 4 PPT, we have to take it out of service. Yeah. And is that, does that kind of detection require a whole new set of equipment and other ways of of going about it? Or can we use our existing tools to detect at that level? So actually the lab just had a PFOS instrument installed um, and they're working on developing the method so that we can run it in-house. And this is a costly test because it, it has to be like it's so clean where, you know, you can't risk contamination. Um, so we're working on it so that we can test in-house. It'll be more efficient, more cost-effective. And we know with these changing guidelines, and we can expect it. When we get it, everybody's learning. We've, we've talked about that. We're all learning more and more about this man-made chemical. But we know that that's going to become a tool like that is going to be so important because it's going to become even more prevalent as we move forward. And and to your point, it's the hot topic, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even within the past few years, we, you know, we're using one method and then as things develop, now we're using a completely separate method. Um, So it's always changing. um, And we're just trying to go with the change. (laughs) Trying to keep up. Trying to keep up. Yeah. (laughs) Which we're doing, uh, but we know that, that, that's ongoing, and there's never a, a finish line there. Yeah, well, yeah. we're trying. We, ha- we have to. Yeah. It's not even trying. It's we will. This um, is the it, health and safety of our public. Yes, we will do it. It's just going to take time, and a lot of people want answers now, and we just don't have them. Yeah, there's going to – there needs to be more research and yes. more understanding of exactly where this is, where it's coming from, and how best to tackle it. Yes. Um, can you define MCL? What does MCL stand for? Sure. It's called, um, an, an MCL is a maximum contaminant level, and it's set by EPA or the state. And, um, you know, we talked about the testing and the water characteristics. Um, they're set for, each contaminant is set at a different level, and we can't exceed them. There's a whole list. <laughs> you can find it in the CCR, um, but we are not to exceed those levels. Gotcha. So I kind of, we've talked a lot about water quality, the different things we've tested for. We've talked about the hot topic, the PFOS, PFOA, and how we're working to test for that and mitigate that um, here in our, at the local level. If somebody, if you were talking to yourself 17 years ago or a student today that is you 17 years ago, um, or even somebody who's maybe just thinking about a career in water quality science specifically, what kind of advice or what what encouragement would you provide for them? I think you take any opportunity you can and, you know, be curious about your job. What Ask the why. Why am I doing this? You know, for what reason? Um, every job has a purpose, and I think it's really important to understand the purpose and why you're doing what you're doing. I like that. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Your your knowledge, you have 
so much knowledge and you're always a wealth of information. So uh, thanks for coming on. And I think as things develop in this world of PFOS, PFOA, this new this new chemical that we're trying to really understand better, we'll, we'll have you back to kind of talk about that. Sounds good. Thank you for having me. Thank you. joining us for this episode of The Drop, a podcast by Eastern Municipal Water District. To learn more about the efforts EMWD takes every day to ensure safe, reliable, and quality water, wastewater, and recycled water service to our community, you can visit us at www.emwd.org slash water quality. There, you can also download our latest water quality or CCR report. Until next time.